Hello, friends and listeners. Katie and I are currently in the middle of our 14th season of Her Story on the Rocks, and we are getting ready to come upon our 200th regular season episode. Now, that's going to show up in February. However, in March for Women's History Month, we're going to do a live Zoom event that you can get tickets to. Come and hang out with us as we drink, do women's trivia, and have on some of our other favorite podcasts to talk about women's history. More details are going to follow on all of our social medias and on our show. So stay tuned. March 24th, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. I'll see you there. Bring a drink. So are you packed for tomorrow? No. Uh uh-oh. <laughs> what time are you leaving? Uh, we're leaving around like one o'clock because it takes three hours to get there okay. and we can't check in until four. Mm. So, and we'll have the dog with us. So it's not even like we can like go up and like go, go out to lunch or yeah. <laughs> so that gives us the whole morning to, you know, get ready. And I did like kind of like set things up today. Okay. Um, but you know, today I had some jobs. I had to finish my research. So like today was more so like a work day and then. Uh, tomorrow morning we'll finish packing and get all of our snowboard gear together and hopefully I don't break my legs this <laughs> <In between>. week. <laughs> yeah, or like before you get there. That would yeah, be that tragic. Would suck. <laughs> After paying all this money to go snowboarding. I'm so excited so. for you. This should be so fun. Thank you. Yeah. I'm also very excited and you know, I was also running around today and like getting food and getting yeah. pet safe salt for yeah. the cabin because it's probably gonna be snowy up there right so, which we haven't gotten any snow yet this year yeah here so we don't yeah we don't have a lot of like snow going on yeah i think february 16th i heard is our record for the latest snowfall ever oh so stay tuned everybody we'll see uh. i highly doubt we're gonna get any snow before then no <laughs> it's warm 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 yeah but I'll, yeah and it was like 50 degrees today in baltimore i know which is, it was delightful Delightful but concerning. Yeah. And, uh, but tomorrow, the rest of the week, I'll be cold though. Yes, so. you will be. I will be nice and warm. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're not here to talk about snowboarding. No. We're here to talk about history with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we're drinking the entire time. And we are not historians. I'm actually a little bit educated in tonight's though. Like I'm ready. Oh yeah. Well, that's why I gave this one to you, Uh which is funny because everybody would probably think that I would do it, but I was like, actually like... Because I've never even read Helter Skelter. Oh, yeah. No, this is my yeah. murder. Yes. Like, this is the one murder I know about. The one murder. This the is one. all the murders. <laughs> it's a lot of murder. So, um, but yeah. So, you are actually very expert in your field. Um, yeah. Mine, I, I'm going to do a bad job. This is going to be like Ada Blackjack all over again. Okay, that is that all That story right. haunts me because I did <laughs> such a bad job of it. It's okay. I have stories like that as well. It's fine. Yeah. I don't think the listeners know unless we bring it up. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah. <laughs> now you know. All righty. You mean all of our listeners aren't experts in West African politics? No, I think they are. I think they are. (laughs) 
So anyways, but you are busy. Studying for your test on West African politics <laughs> yes. in the 1800s. So you don't want to, you know, get new tabs pulled up and you pull out your phone. Your phone is on silent mode. You need to keep it away from you so you don't get distracted. But you're still listening to this somehow. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. You're studying, so you can't look up what these women look like. Not at all. So we're going to describe them for you in a li- <laughs> We're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing and what did they look like? We botched that, we, first that of was all. Bad. Apologies sorry, to everyone. Um, I am doing the Manson Girls Ooh. of the Charles Manson, Tate LaBianca murders. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Manson Girls are traditionally seen um, as three white women in their early 20s with long brown hair parted down the middle. They're typically wearing loose-fitting 70s-style clothing, which is, like, semi-dressy due to the fact that most of their pictures are taken as they're walking into courtrooms. <laughs> <laughs> um, as the, Because, they're, I mean, their trial took nine months, so there's picture <sighs> after picture after picture of these girls kind of walking into courtrooms together. Uh-huh. Um, later in their court appearances, um, when they were kind of going for their um sentencing they all kind of cut their hair really short Mm -hmm. in honor of charles manson and carved crosses in their foreheads not um swastikas that's what charles manson had in his forehead they like carved like some crosses um and in the most famous pictures of the ladies they're kind of like walking hand in hand yeah that's what i always picture yeah together into court so that is what the three most famous um manson girls look like okay we'll talk more about them in a bit second story <laughs> okay, who are you doing? Or who and what all? do they yes. look like? <laughs> so I am doing the Dahomey Amazon Warriors. These women are young African women who are very muscular and athletic because they are the fiercest soldiers you have ever seen. They had different uniforms for whatever branch they were in, but the most famous uniform that we have descriptions of. Uh, was white tunics with blue pinstripes, a black belt, and striped shorts underneath the tunic. And in this particular sketch of the warrior, um, she is also wearing a white fez with a picture of an alligator on it. And she is wielding a rifle in her right hand and a severed men's head in the other. <laughs> oh, gross. <laughs> uh, but in later photographs of the Amazon warriors, uh, they would be wearing feathered headdresses and what looks kind of like beaded tops, which may have been what they actually were, or it may have been an attempt on behalf of the whoever's photographing them to make them look more savage. Mm. Because every other description and picture, they're wearing like tunics and like... <laughs> Like something like, that's easy to fight and move yes. in. Yeah. <laughs> Not like a beaded attire. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So anyways, but yeah, that is what these women looked like. Wow. Yes. They sound <laughs> Strong really Strong West African fancy. women. <laughs> um, okay. So what are we drinking? Okay. So this cocktail is called Ruthless. It is coconut rum, blueberry liqueur, Aperol, and lime juice. Just all mixed up together. That sounds so good. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, I actually like that. It is really oh good. Gosh. Yeah, it's really good. I thought it was going to be too sweet. Yeah. But it's very nice. And I'm always, um, I hate fake blueberry. So mm. I'm always very, like, skeptical of what blueberry is going to taste like. Mm-hmm. But it works really well with the, co- I mean, anytime you put coconut rum in a drink. Oh, yeah. 
It dominates it, it but it makes it also good. taste delicious. Yeah, it's just really, <laughs> really great. All right. So what do you know about the Dahomey Amazons? Um, I don't know anything really about them. I saw some pictures of them, and they really remind me of the warriors that would have been in Wakanda in, like, the Black Panther series. Mm-hmm. Um, just this, like, all-female, like, tribe of well-trained fighters. Mm-hmm. But that's really the only connection I would make in my head. Okay. Perfect. Well, let's get into it. Uh, just a fair warning. Um, this was our shortest turnaround for an episode. So ever, ever. Ever in the history of uh, her story. <laughs> we had last Thursday to Monday, uh, which we normally have a whole week. So, And I am, again, not a scholar of West African political conflicts uh, in the you know 1800s. 1800s i think you've got it i think you might so, enlighten the world we'll see um so just like <laughs> bear that in mind um but i'm gonna do my the best that i can so and my sources today were stuff you missed in history class and the history guy on youtube as well as some other little videos and uh wikipedia and some other just like random sources online so today i'm going to be talking about the famous dahomey amazon warriors also known as the Dahomey Minon, which means, uh, Minon means our mothers. And another name that um, they, people referenced to them as was the Agoji. But before we get into these fierce fighters, we have to talk about the location of our story. So Dahomey is loca- was located in present-day Benin in West Africa. Is it Benin or Benin? Benin. I always say Benin, but it Benin? Could, I think okay. it might be pronounced Benin. I don't know. Okay. The Dahomey Kingdom is said to have been founded in 1600 by the Fon people, a West African ethnic group. The first famous leader of the kingdom was a man named Aho. He is often credited as the first king of Dahomey due to his leadership and influence. He established the royal palaces of Abomey, and this is a group of 12 palaces that served as the cultural hub of the Dahomey kingdom. And these palaces are still around today. Wow. And considered a UNESCO, uh, UNESCO heritage site. So you can still visit them. It's really cool. That does. I mean, I'm always shocked when there's still like some really great things on that coast. Cause I would just think that just like ravaged. slavery would yeah. have just ravaged the mm-hmm. area. Uh, he is also said to have established the general structure of the royal administration, uh, including taxes. And he did start expanding the kingdom a little bit, but not as much as his uh, grandson would. There is also legend that he started a group of female elephant hunters called the um, Beto. Some say they never existed. Some say they laid the groundwork for strong groups of militarized women. So I don't know. He also established a rule in these palaces that he built that the king was the only man allowed in the palace after dark, I guess to protect his daughters and wives. But they needed someone to guard them, so they tasked women with the job. And it is believed that the first recruits for these, you know, night night guard jobs of the palace were from the pool of the king's wives. So these women were already married to him. They were trusted and they were already in the palace at night. And if you're wondering which wives would be recruited, well, that would be the third tier wives. (laughs) These were the women that the king married, but were not attractive enough to have sex with. (laughs) And again, these men have like hundreds, some say even thousands of wives. Okay. And some of them are like political marriages and some of them are just like convenience marriages Mm -hmm. or just like a show of power. It seems like it. Okay. Um, So, so yeah. So the third tier wives would be made into the night guards. And that's kind of also where people kind of say this started. I'm trying to be a third tier wife. Yeah, I know. (laughs) Right? (laughs) 
<laughs> just get paid to work out all day and learn how to use weapons honestly i mean that is um, a job we could just join the military yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's like a real thing people do oh god <laughs> now that you put in that like <laughs> now that no you thanks. say it like that <laughs> um so things were steady for a bit and then aho's grandson um, Agaja came to power in 1708. Agaja was definitely on that expansion train and quickly took over two neighboring kingdoms, Alada and Wida. These were vital kingdoms for him to conquer because they were big ports for the Atlantic slave trade. But there's one big problem with these new assets. They were tributaries to the much larger Oyo Empire. Oh. So there's an empire, and then these are all like little kingdoms. This empire controlled most of West Africa at the time. But Agaja didn't really want to be a tributary to Oyo. So he went to war with them in the late 1720s because he was like, I want to be completely independent. He Mm. basically wants to create his own empire (laughs) so that he doesn't have to pay them. Well, and that section of Africa for a really long time was super wealthy, like because Mm -hmm. they had all the salt and they were like, it was right at the end of the like trans-Saharan like trade routes. Mm-hmm. So it's like everybody was coming from the Silk Road, dropping shit off in the Middle East, and then it was going from the Middle East down to West Africa and back. Yep. It's like it was very wealthy. I think the most wealthy person to ever live is from that region, Mansa yeah. Musa. Like, but that was like the 1400s or something. Maybe earlier yeah. than that. I don't know. But it like we always think of like the commercials with like Africa like begging for money oh, yeah. because we were mm-hmm. brought up with like Sarah McLaughlin singing mm-hmm. in the background. Those are the aunt pet ones but whatever (laughs) and i just i like sometimes i have to like reframe my brain yeah be like these kingdoms were like insanely powerful insanely powerful insanely wealthy and that's why it was so alluring to yeah (laughs) to to colonialists (laughs) come over like well look at all those resources that we don't have in europe because we're overpopulated in this small small cold place yep so Agaja is really messing with the big boys now, and he decides that his main strategy in this war is going to be hiding his treasury, abandoning his capital, and burning the country's crops. What a Apparently, he does this like three times. (laughs) So Agaja and his army, by the end of all this, are in a bit of a weakened state. (laughs) So at this point, the former king of Wida senses an opportunity to take back his kingdom. So Agaja needs another plan. So with his regular forces depleted from all the fighting, he looks towards the women. He took the women from his kingdom, dressed them up to look like male soldiers, and placed them in the battlefield to act as if he had this vast army. The exiled king of Wida mm -hmm, saw the sheer size of Agaja's army and fled. The women, in this sense, had no skill or military training. They were just kind of used as decoys. But it's still like we're kind of in those stepping stones of like these are all the things that led to them actually having this militarized force. That's like Gideon in the Bible, right? Wasn't that him banging the clay pots oh, like in yeah. the at nighttime to make it seem like your army is bigger? I think it was. Yeah. And then there's also oh wait, I'm thinking of Jericho when oh, they like where marched they marched around, around, around it. But it that's in a circles. different thing. Yeah. <laughs> So Agaja soon negotiated a peace treaty uh, between Dahomey and Oyo. And by that, I mean he agreed to remain a tributary and provide annual gifts to Oyo. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But now that that was settled, he could continue expanding into the smaller countries. He's like, I need to get back into my wheelhouse, I guess. Like, I need to just, like, focus on the ones that I can actually conquer instead of this empire. So he conquered some more. He set up key government structures of Dahomey. But many believe that he 
now started to heavily involve Dahomey in the European slave trade. Mm. Not so great. Right. So obviously they're conquering a lot of other small countries. They're taking a lot of prisoners and then they're selling those prisoners to the Europeans right. and also keeping many for themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's a little bit of self-preservation and mm-hmm. a little bit of intertribal warfare. Like- oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So this isn't, you know, the best, obviously. Um, and he also started an annual tradition of human sacrifice. Okay. Criminals and slaves were gathered up and sacrificed to honor past rulers. One of the mass sacrifices was said to include 400 captives. And this may have had something to do with Agash's wife. So, of course, this is like his official, like, first lady, you know. Um, she was a woman named Huanji, and she was a Vudan priestess who was very, very influential. And when Agasha eventually died and their only son, Tegbesu, took the throne, he gave her the title of uh, Kbojito, which means Mother of the Leopard, which is such a cool title. That is cool. <laughs> I love that. She was the rainmate of her son and uh, for some time, and she was the most powerful woman in this region, which, as we said, is a very wealthy region. Mm-hmm. So, like... She was fucking balling out. Yeah, honestly. Um, <laughs> so she is still today to be considered one of the most influential women of Dahomey's history because the religion and the gods that she imported into Dahomey are still worshipped in Benin today. Well, and think about the lack of presence that women had in, like, Europe at that mm-hmm. time. So she, like, arguably could be one of the most powerful women in that area. Yeah. total. Absolutely. So now that we have an idea of this one very powerful woman in the area, let's get into the others. By the time we get to a man named King Gezo in the 1800s, um, so we're just like fast forwarding to through a couple of kings because there were like certain ones that like obviously like did more than others, reigned longer than others. And this is when we really get the story of the Dahomey Amazons. Um, so he was really invested in the idea of this all-female army and sometimes he's given credit for the whole idea but we just went through like 200 years of other men claiming (laughs) you know the rights to the idea of this or whatever yeah so it's believed that during his reign at least one third of the dahomey military was the amazon fighters they numbered around six thousand, and they were fierce now, King Gezo is an interesting figure because he came to power through a coup. Um, and he may have even paired up with a Portuguese explorer, Francisco de Souza. And he definitely overthrew his brother for the throne. <laughs> <laughs> and one of his first acts was to expand the military and stop paying tribute to the Oyo Empire. So we're back to that idea. <laughs> so he clearly needed a big, fierce army of ladies to accomplish his goals. These women were chosen as early as eight years old, sometimes from the Dahomey community, especially if their fathers or husbands were complaining about their daughter's bad behavior or their wife's bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a way to, like, get rid of women you were irritated with, which is not great. Um, And they... Women could also join voluntarily if they wanted to, but most often they were chosen from groups of women and girls that they had captured in warfare. Hmm. So... Training was brutal. The girls were forced to run through fields of acacia thorn bushes or climb walls of acacia thorns with bare hands and feet, like over and over again, to teach them how to be just completely indifferent towards pain. Oh. Yeah. It'd be and just like, like I get mean, used to silent it. Silent in like the, the uh-huh. brute of pain. Oh, yeah. crazy. 
awful. Um, they were also forced to commit all of the like state executions so that they would develop an indifference to death. And this was most often, this task was given to the youngest girls. Like they wanted to start this tradition as early as possible so they could start being desensitized as early as possible. Right. So basically the executioner of Dahomey was like an eight-year-old girl <laughs> or like a troop of eight-year-old girls. Right. Crazy. So, um, and then, then another big part of the training was being sent into the desert to learn survival skills. So obviously, you know, if they didn't come back. You didn't fucking make it. Right. Like <laughs> that's a sacrifice they're willing to take if you just like can't hack it. Right. Recruits were all officially married to the king. So they were not allowed to have relationships or children. And to doubly make sure of that, the girls were forced to undergo female genital mutilation. Mm. And if they were found out to have relationships with men, they were killed. So it's said that many of the women formed romantic relationships with each other, um, I guess, just to have some kind of company. We don't, again, we don't know if this is all true. um, But one of the reasons that these rules existed was so that their military service wasn't uh, interrupted by men, husbands, boyfriends, children, because as we learned in Coyote Ugly, it just makes things more complicated. <laughs> I mean, that's also what they did in Game of Thrones, right? <laughs> like, they castrated everybody yeah. in that mili- like in the military, mm-hmm. like, so that you don't have anything that you're, like, waiting to go home to. Yep. It's like, that's it. That's exactly. your life. There were also some interesting gender politics concerning these women. Uh, it seems like they were a proud female fighting force, but also some sources say that they were no longer considered women once they joined and they made their first kills. And then one traveler claims that the women would chant this as the blacksmith takes an iron bar and by fire changes its fashion. So have we changed our nature. We are no longer women. We are men. Now, all of this of course has to be taken with a grain of salt because a lot of the information we have about them comes from outsiders. So Mm -hmm. I also just want to put that out there that I have no idea how much of this was actually true or was just kind of like misunderstanding by the like Europeans or, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's just hard to tell. So I just want to put that out there. Yeah, like how things were changed and translated over time, Mm -hmm. specifically when it's seen from somebody who's not inside the culture. Exactly. Uh, But one thing we know is that these women were respected in the community and they were feared by enemies. It is said that the reputation of the brutality of the Dahomey Amazons was their biggest weapon. Enemies didn't even want to bother with these women. So it, it actually, like, the invasions coming into Dahomey, like, cut back drastically because people <laughs> were like, I don't want to deal with them. And the nice thing was they had a similar setup to the men's army. So women could rise in the ranks. They could become captains. They could earn higher wages. So, like, they're also getting paid. It's a merit system. Yeah. That's cool. And this army consisted of a number of regiments. So you had huntresses, riflewomen, reapers, archers, and gunners. Each regiment had different uniforms, weapons, and commanders. The reapers are especially interesting because they carried bow staff-like weapons that had long, sharp blades on the end of them that could slice a man in two with a single blow. (gasps) So those are, like, the most badass. That's crazy. That reminds me of that Ghost Ship movie. You know what I'm talking about? What? There's no movie called Ghost Ship, but somebody gets sliced in half with, like, a wire. It's terrifying. If anybody's ever seen that movie, hit me up. I saw it once, and I still think about it. (laughs) 
<laughs> I'm not big on horror movies. I hate horror movies. Yeah. But producer likes them, so sometimes we watch them. Wild. I know. Um, these women also had great political power in the kingdom, and they were often strong voices in the high council. And if they were leaving a building, they would have, like, a young slave girl walk before them and ring a bell signaling to everyone in the area, especially the men, that they should look away and clear the road for them. <laughs> like, that's how respected these women were. Like, turn your head. We're coming through. Yeah. A European visitor once said, these women are everything here. And another said they were clearly far superior to the men in everything, including bravery. But these women were not totally invincible. And, you know, because they are fighting for a country that is constantly at war, you know, they lost a lot of good ladies. So in 1851 and 1864, they fought against the Egba people in western Nigeria, and they lost large numbers of soldiers. Um, so they hadn't quite replenished their army when trouble with France started up later on. So we have to take this back a little bit again. In the 1850s, there was a peace treaty signed between France and Dahomey. This allowed the French to send missionaries into the region and engage in trade. But as the years went on and they kept signing more and more and more agreements, things got a little fuzzy because apparently it wasn't actually the king of Dahomey sending the agreements. It was a representative. And then in 1885, the king was denying that any of these treaties were valid since he never actually signed it. And so after a lot of weird stuff, you know, Basically, he wanted the land that the French had taken back. France wanted to keep expanding their territory. So now Dahomey is at war with France. And that's too big that's of a power. too big. This is known as the first Franco-Dahomean War. European observers noted that the women handled admirably in hand-to-hand -hand combat, but fired their flintlocks from the hip rather than from the shoulder, whatever that means. I didn't really their know. Gun, like, they're firing their gun from here? I guess so. Oh. But... It was weird because one person said that as a positive. They're like, oh, and they were really, you know, much better than the men because they fired from their hip rather than their shoulder. But then this one was like, oh, no, that's a bad thing to fire from your hip. And I don't know jack shit about guns, so yeah, I, don't I don't know. know. <laughs> Maybe it has to do with aim or, like, how quickly you can reload or, yeah. like, re, you know, shoot again. So I, I feel have like no in idea. Westerns, they're always shooting from – I feel like shooting from the hip yeah, is a good Yeah, but if it's, thing. like, a flintlock, it's got to be one of the bigger ones, yeah. right? Like, yeah. you know, like, where the whole top is opening and closing back right. up. I don't know. So – yeah. But then, in the biggest battle of Again, we're woefully ignorant about guns. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, the Amazons were said to be crushed by the massive firepower of the French forces. But they held their own for longer than thought possible, since they were, again, largely fighting hand-to-hand -hand combat. And the French had a lot more guns and better guns. Probably have, like, machine guns. This is, yeah. like, what, the, the 1800s? This is the 1890s yeah. at this okay. point. Yeah, so, they've got some big things going on. Yeah. So apparently one Amazon warrior killed France's main gunner and another Amazon warrior was disarmed, but still managed to kill her enemy by biting his throat open. Ooh. All right. Brutal. That is brutal. <laughs> but Got a little Mike Tyson yeah. over there. But the Dahomey eventually withdrew and after another similar battle, they signed a peace treaty. This 
These peace treaties just apparently don't matter, though, because then there was a second Franco-Dahomian War. Yep. <laughs> the French forces were led by General Alfred Amadei Dodds, and Dahomey was being run by King Behenzine. They thought they had a better chance since they had increased their firearm power by trading with the Germans, but they were defeated yet again. And after this particular battle and this particular war, only 50 to 60 Dahomey and Amazon warriors remained. Dahomey. Out of the 6,000. Yeah. That's crazy. They soon um, officially became a French colony and these last few Amazon warriors were relegated to being a sideshow act. Oh, that's <sighs> gross. So we know that from events such as the Chicago World's Fair, white Westerners and Europeans were eager to see exotic animals and people, which they, of course, decided were pretty much interchangeable. <laughs> so between the 1890s and the 1930s, colonizers traveled around the world with groups of people from African countries, you know, and other countries they had colonized to basically basically show them off. And one of these acts was the Dahomey Amazons. Now, whether the women in this act were real warriors or not is unknown. But the first official showcase of the Amazons took place in Paris shortly after Dahomey became a French colony. So it's pretty likely. Um, as these shows increased in popularity, the exhibitions became more elaborate with showrunners even recreating whole set pieces from their village and then having the Amazon women recreate the battles that they fought as fun as a fun experience for the audience. This seems not only condescending, but like traumatic. Yeah. 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 Can you imagine like literally being taken by the people that took over your country and like killed all of your like sisters basically. And then, having to replay those scenes all the time for that, for their amusement. Like with people ooing and eyeing yeah. at you? No, no, I cannot imagine. No. Now, some people have a problem with glorifying the Dahomey Amazon warriors too much because, you know, the kingdom they were fighting for participated in the transatlantic slave trade. You know, apparently that's how they were getting a lot of these weapons. It's the, how they moved a lot of their goods. Um, now, some historians say that the Amazons were specifically trying to stop the slave trade and pivot more towards the trade of palm oil instead of people. But other people are like, oh, no, like these warriors were like absolutely participating in it. So, again, it's one of those things. I don't know yeah. what the correct answer is. Yeah. And I mean, just in, in general, in history, like the transatlantic slave trade is the one that's closest to like us now but it's not the first and nor will it be the last slave yeah. trade like it just has happened you know forever so other people participating it besides like europe and the united mm -hmm. states is like i know it sounds crazy but it's like yeah. everybody was doing this anyway like yep. selling people and it's just as terrible regardless yeah. but mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's just, like, the history is so much broader than we ever right. think we, Yeah, we always think it's, like, yeah, of course, American slavery. But then you yep. look back and it's, like, oh, but what about Haiti? Uh -huh. Oh, but what about this? Oh, but mm -hmm. what about that? And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. In 1979, the last Dahomey warrior, a woman named Nawi, died. She was well over 100 and took with her memories of fighting the French in 1892. So wait, when did you say she died? 1979. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Isn't that wild? Oh, my gosh. I, 
really crazy. Yeah. Um, but the Dahomey Amazons live on now, thanks to the legend herself, Viola Davis. In 2022, she made a film called The Woman King, all about the elite female fighting force defending their West African kingdom from European invaders. One critic said of the movie, think Braveheart, but with black women. And I <laughs> think that that is an excellent <laughs> description of the film. <laughs> As I said, some Dahomey warriors were taken abroad to be shown off, but, sim- the, but then others simply retired in their homeland. They became wives and mothers, but they had a hard time adjusting. Some people in the community said that these women couldn't just snap back into becoming regular citizens. So they would start fights in the community. They would, you know, get really mad at people. They'd fly off the handle. And, like, they were just, like, almost like too aggressive Mm. for normal society because that's how they were literally trained to be yeah and i mean even if not just like too aggressive maybe like too aggressive for like a place of a woman yeah like how Mm -hmm. you should be acting yeah but there were a few women who continued on the tradition they trained girls who wanted to be a part of the dahomey amazon you know so they kind of continued on with it but they never saw combat again Mm -hmm. you know Um, And then there is a legend that some of the fiercest warriors escaped and went into hiding, only coming out to assassinate the French leaders who had taken over their country. And that is how I would like to leave them, as symbols of a resistance, because unfortunately, we still need a lot of that resistance power today. Yeah, (laughs) we really do. So, yeah, that is the Dahomey Amazons. That's so cool. That's (laughs) so interesting. Yeah, it is. You know, you never think of like, um, I mean, you always think of women as being kind of like considered like the second class like citizens and like, you know, we'll use you for all the like unimportant work. And Mm -hmm. it does seem like they were kind of pushed to the side. But as second class wives, they rose to this like place of power, which is just amazing. Very cool. Yeah. All right. You ready for more cocktails? I am. All right. Let's, let's do, do it. it. <laughs> you are one story, one toast, one promo, and one patron episode away from your vacation. <laughs> How Can you believe it? does that feel? <laughs> It feels wonderful. Yeah. I, but it's funny because my house is like all food for the trip and I like didn't think to like get food for us for dinner tonight. So I'm like, hey, talk about way home. I don't know what's going to happen, but <laughs> yeah. it's going to be bananas. You'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> um, but I did remember to get you a cocktail. Yeah. Do you want to know what you're this. drinking? It looks delightful. Yes. Yeah. It looks really delightful. The Manson girls are not delightful, <laughs> but um, Negronis were really popular in the 70s. Oh. So mm-hmm. I wanted to use Campari, uh-huh. but the drink is called Coercion. Ooh. So it's like red, like a Negroni, but also kind of looks like a Cosmo, but it's yeah. none of that stuff. So it is white wine, Campari, soda water, and then three limes, like holding hands on top. All right. So well, cheers. Good luck. <laughs> cheers. That is very interesting. It's got a really... Bitter, Very bitter. Bitter on the back, but mm-hmm. it's also like enjoyable. Yeah, the white wine cuts down on the bitterness uh-huh. of the Campari so well. Yeah. 
Yeah, I I like it. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I feel like our cocktails were very similar colors this week. They were. They <laughs> were. We're like really – well, you used Aperol. That's why. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Aperol and Campari practically look like the same sisters. in the fridge. <laughs> Even the labels are weird. Yeah. <laughs> like you're, you can pick the wrong one out of the fridge by mm-hmm. accident. Okay. Tell me what you know about the Manson girls. Okay. So I know that there were three that went to jail. Yeah. Um, and I know that there's also Squeaky From, who's like, <laughs> argu- like one of the famous ones that didn't actually go to jail for that, but then she tried to like assassinate Gerald Ford. Yeah. <laughs> no president killing, bad girl. Yes. Um, and so I know that they were followers of Charles Manson. They were part of his like little hippie cult in the desert. Like they, <laughs> I've listened to a lot of things about the Manson family and I just still like sometimes cannot make heads or tails of it. Yeah. You know, because some people are like Charles Manson's the devil incarnate and other people are like, he just wanted to ride dune buggies in the desert and then kind of accidentally got caught up in this stuff. So like, I feel like you can go like really far on the, like, he's not that bad. And then really far into like, mm-hmm. he's Satan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can go both directions. Yeah. Yep. For sure. And, but I know that the, these girls were part of it. I know Leslie Van Houten keeps getting denied parole. <laughs> she was very, very involved. Um, and yeah, they were a big part of the Tate LaBianca murders as well as some other ones that yes. I feel like don't get talked about they as don't. much. No. Um, but yeah, so there were more murders that again are forgotten about um so anyways and then they went to jail and as far as i know they're still there today yeah they are and they had a wild court appearances and they like would sing in the and giggle and be fun you know yeah so that's what i know in people's faces (laughs) so i i wasn't quite sure how to go about this because Mm -hmm. obviously these are some of the most covered and like a a murders of all time people are Mm -hmm. so interested in charles manson they're so interested in these murders that like happened over one summer over a couple of weeks yeah (laughs) so um i really tried to stick to the three most famous girls i bring up a lot of other ones Um, I bring up the assassination at the end Mm -hmm. and I just wanted to focus on them and try to understand what was going on and how they ended up tied into this mess. Perfect. Okay. So the young, oh, obviously (laughs) I've read Helter Skelter so many times for me, it's the best type of murder book. I can understand how for some people it's very dry, but mm-hmm. the fact that it was written by the prosecutor yeah. that has all the facts and like just lays it out for you hour by hour, this is what happened and this is what we knew at this point. Mm-hmm. So he does a really great job of like, this is why it was so confusing to find these people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I read that and then I read a lot of specific things online this past weekend about the girls specifically because there are chapters in the book about that but it doesn't go as much into their past as i would like yeah so the young women known as the manson girls were normal beautiful bright teenagers before they became associated with the brutal murder of seven people in the case of the tate labianca murders and nine if you count the extras The three most famous are Susan Atkins, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Leslie Van Houten. They were female disciples of cult leader Charles Manson, whose doomsday scenario described a race war called Helter Skelter. Um, 
Now, the Manson family, like Katie said, has been accused of multiple different murders at multiple different times uh, over a five-week period. But when we discuss that, quote, Manson girls that you p- picture going mm-hmm. into the courtroom, they were being charged and tried for the Tate LaBianca murders. Okay, so just those. Just okay. those two um, because they involved similar people in a two-day period. Okay. So it was like they could prosecute them for those all at once. Okay. Um, Susan Atkins specifically had been prosecuted for other ones and was found guilty, but at that point she had already been like life in prison for right. something else. Yeah. So like they they ha- they went back and found them guilty of other things, but these were the big ones mm-hmm. where they got caught. And we'll talk about specifically with Charles Manson, why it's so important that he went to jail too. Yeah. Um, when we get to the end of this. So we're going to start with Susan Atkins because she was one of the highest up women in the Manson family. Susan was born May 7th, 1948 in San Gabriel, California. She was the second of three children. Both of her parents were alcoholics and her mother died of cancer when she was 16 years old. Obviously, Susan's life was disrupted by this gradual breakup of her family and frequent frequent relocations after her mom died. And um, she also, around this time as a teen, when her mom is really, really sick, chose to leave home to live independently um, while she's kind of still in high school. So she's out on her own. Before this, though, her family had lived a really middle-class life, and she was described as quiet and self-conscious. She belonged to the school's glee club and the local church choir. Two weeks before her mom died, she was actually with her friends outside her mom's hospital window singing Christmas carols. So she was living a very traditional Mm -hmm. middle-class teenage girl life. But after her mom died... She and her two brothers were taken care of by family members. And ultimately, like I said, Susan ended up out on her own. By 1966, she and two of her classmates were kind of jumping from couch to couch to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, Susan met Charles Manson. He was playing a guitar at her friend's house where she happened to be staying that night. And a few weeks later, uh, that house was raided by the police because they're doing some drugs. Mm-hmm. They're stealing to make enough money to live. Um, and they're just kind of living the hippie life at this point. But this renders Susan homeless so manson invites her to join in on this road trip that he is going to take over this summer where he has converted an old school bus and painted it completely black um to go and kind of live on this ranch that Mm -hmm. they don't quite have yet but that's what they're going to go do susan's nickname in the group was sadie so that's what she went by in the manson family Now let's bounce back to the beginning of Patricia's life. Patricia was born December 3rd, 1947 in Los Angeles to an insurance salesman and a homemaker. She attended high school in LA and was often bullied and suffered from really low Mm self-esteem. I would say of the three main girls, she's definitely the least physically appealing. Because didn't he like call her like Big Patty or something? Yes. And, And like he was the first man to really ever give her physical affection she okay yeah she was like not very pretty she she was 
overweight but then also had excessive growth of body hair Aww. because of a condition called endocrine like Aww. or it's an endocrine condition that she yeah. had um at 17 her parents also divorced she remained in la with her dad until she graduated high school and even taught catechism classes where she thought about becoming a nun then and this is interesting patricia left and went to college for a semester really? yeah she went to a jesuit college in alabama but after one semester dropped out and came back to california she moved into her half sister's apartment in manhattan beach and found a job as a processing clerk so patricia is a very very intelligent she's not just yeah. like a high school grad she's got her ducks in a row mm-hmm in 1967, she also met Charles Manson. In later interviews, she claims that she had sex with him the first night that they met. And like I said, he is the first person to ever have told her that she was beautiful. Mm. She was mesmerized by Manson's charisma and starved for attention. So she decides to go to San Francisco with him and leave behind her apartment, her car, her last paycheck, and in going to San Francisco, that's kind of where they meet up with Susan Atkins because okay. that's where Susan is staying. As the Manson family is growing, um, Patricia, who went by Kate sometimes, they all had many aliases yeah. within the family, <laughs> um, is having like a drug and sex filled 18 months tour of the American West in this old school bus. During this summer, Though Patricia and another family member named Ella Bailey were hitchhiking around L.A. when Dennis um, of the Beach Boys picks them up yeah. when they're hitchhiking. And it's this very is, weird that the Beach Boys are connected to this. The Beach Boys <laughs> are so involved in this in the weirdest, weirdest way. So Dennis, the drummer, picks up these two girls and invites them to his home later as a famous musician mm -hmm. would if you're around like two young, you know, 20-something girls. And they get a hold of Manson. I want to say call, but they didn't have cell phones. Yeah. So they get a hold of Manson <laughs> and are like, hey, um, Dennis of the Beach Boys is going to his recording session but he invited us to his house later so by the time dennis gets there charles manson and the rest of the family are just in his house <laughs> eating his food there's people asleep in his bedrooms like having sex partying inside and outside of his house they live with him for several months yeah months with give a hippie boys. a key i know they say but i mean financial problems they like make him go into financial distress and eventually he has to like kick them out of his <laughs> home oh isn't God. that crazy <laughs> yes it is and i just like i love that that's part of the story but i'm also like what the fuck were the beach boys into i mean i know it was drugs and, well, like, and also the one of the beach god i can't remember what the fuck his name was um but it was like the leader of the beach boys because there were two brothers yeah like he had very like severe like mental health issues yes. so i think it was a combination of mental health stuff and drugs so like he and had manson this is charismatic as well yeah and he wants manson wants to be in the music industry yes. like that's he, he has music guitar. out there that you can listen to. Yes, he, he <laughs> likes to play. He's playing with the Beach Boys mm -hmm. on his guitar. They're writing music. Yeah, like so he was very close to like not murdering people and just becoming like the next Bob Dylan. Right, like <laughs> he's very very close to that, but he was a little bit too LSD up. Yeah, <laughs> just a little. Yep. <laughs> I mean, but not enough. Like yeah. or too little. It was mm -hmm. one of the two. Um, so they get kicked out, and at that point. 
they're driving around in this school bus and that's when patricia being like kind of smart and another family member persuade a nearly blind and elderly george spawn to allow them to live on his property Mm -hmm. so this is where they get to the ranch in the hills of the fernando valley of california And now let's talk about Leslie. Leslie's arguably the one that the people of the three women who ended up in jail um, long term, they're the one that they're most sympathetic towards. Leslie was born on August 23rd, 1949, um, in the suburbs of L.A. to Paul and Jane Van Houten. She grew up in a middle class church going family with an older brother and two younger adopted siblings from Korea. Her mom and dad divorced when she was 14. Around the age of 15, she started to mess around with drugs, mostly LSD. She later became pregnant, but was ordered to undergo an abortion by her mother and had to bury the aborted fetus in her backyard. After this, she was very removed from her family and harbored serious resentment towards her mother. She then got into yoga and like the big like 70s hippie culture, 60s and 70s hippie culture um, and starts to live with this yoga hippie commune. She would run away from time to time from her parents to live at this commune. But finished high school, she was the homecoming princess like her (laughs) senior year. Like she's a beautiful, popular, like vivacious young girl. A few months into living at this yoga commune, Leslie meets a couple named Catherine and Bobby, and she moves in with them and another woman in the summer of 1968. The four kind of break up due to some severe jealousy, but Bobby and Catherine and Leslie all end up in the Manson family. So they all go, and Leslie's 19 years old, so she is the youngest, like, person in this whole kind of group. Now we have all three of the girls on the ranch, but also I mentioned a lot of other names. So I want to keep in the back of our minds that Charles Manson preyed on a lot of young people who had lost their way and they mm-hmm. were very subject to, uh, in my opinion, his brainwashing and charisma to get followers. Mm-hmm. If he was a musician, he would have been great at getting fans, but yeah. he wasn't. He was a cult leader. Mm-hmm. Charles controlled when and what people would eat he controlled where and when people would sleep and this is all in testimony from linda who we'll talk about later Mm -hmm. um he told people who to have sex with and when and how often and with how many people he also controlled the drugs that he was giving people and he would give larger doses of LSD to people who he thought were maybe straying away a little bit. Mm. He also, the people, the young women in the family who had children, he would often separate them from their children so that he had more control. Um, Leslie, who's been most open about her time on the ranch, said after she had spent a lot of time in um, prison, that she became saturated in acid and really couldn't grasp the existence of 
people living in reality versus the reality she was living anymore. Right. Because I heard that's really what went wrong with like text too. Because obviously yes. text is like. Text is coming up. Okay. <laughs> yeah. He'll be yeah. in the story. But go ahead. Go ahead. But yeah. But I heard like, like he like had some really bad, bad trips and then like also had like kind of like a head injury or something. Like, yeah. There was a lot of bad shit going on with this crew and just way too many hallucinogens <laughs> that are not being appropriately utilized <laughs> yeah too many hallucinogens they're living in the desert mm-hmm. i'm sure they're not drinking enough water Definitely they're not. like riding around playing all day getting injured uh-huh. uh, doing drugs uh-huh. having sex probably a lot of people are have venereal diseases mm-hmm. like there's a lot of shit going on these people yeah. are unwell like physically and mentally and emotionally yeah. all at the same time yeah. and there's not a lot of people reaching out to help no because there's not a lot you could do mm-hmm so Manson um, ostensibly ran the family based on hippie style principles of acceptance and free love, but they were isolated from any other influence but him and what he believed. He was the only opinion that they heard and there were very few other m- men and the high ranking men kind of got control over certain women, like mm. certain women belonged to certain men in mm-hmm. terms of sex. Um, at every meal, he would lecture repetitively. He would repeat Bible verses over and over again, and he would play the Beatles White Album, which is where he kind of got his idea of Helter Skelter from the Beatles song uh, where the quote is ignite a race war leading to world domination. Mm-hmm. Like he's taking this directly from music that he likes. Mm-hmm. Um, he used a series of acid trips and mandatory orgies and hypnotic, like I said, repetitive lectures to really start to weave himself into people's brains. So this is all happening over the summer. People are very unwell. Um, we're often really drawn to the Tate LaBianca murders because of the trial. But before that, Susan was one of the higher ups in the Manson family, and she is on board trying to make sure that this is a successful operation. So during the summer of 1969, the ranch is starting to catch some attention from the police for all the reasons that we just Mm -hmm. listed. (laughs) Lots of teenage runaways. They're stealing so that they can have cars, so that they can have money, so that they can get enough money to move to a new ranch so Mm -hmm. the police stop trailing them. Um, So... Charles Watson, known as Tex, is really kind of second in command to Charles Manson. And he got involved in this kind of like a botched drug scam because Charles Manson was encouraging them to sell drugs Mm -hmm. to make money. So because this whole situation is botched, Manson has to confront this guy and shoot him. Manson thinks he kills this guy, Bernard Crow, and he thinks that Bernard Crow is in the Black Panthers. Neither of those things are true. Charles mm-hmm. Manson just hated the Black Panthers. He did not understood what they st- stood for. Mm-hmm. He thought they were terrible. Um, and he's like, okay, that's a problem. So we definitely need money because the Black Panthers are going to come and attack us on this ranch. Um, so they hear that this guy that is kind of like an acquaintance to the family, Gary Hinman, came into some money. So Susan and two other family members go to Gary's house and beat him severely Mm. trying to get his inheritance or whatever. He insists he didn't make any money. So Manson shows up with a sword and swings it at his face, slicing his face like across and his ear really badly injured. 
He tells Susan and Bobby to stay behind and tend to his wounds. Two days later, they had um, Gary sign over the registration to his car to him, to them. And then Bobby fatally stabs him in the face. Um, But Bobby is caught in this guy's car less than a month later. And Bobby's taken in for this. Susan does get charged for helping with this later on. Mm -hmm. But... The reason I want to put that story out there first is because she, unlike the others, I think had more autonomy in the situation and was making more choices. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Leslie was definitely making the least amount of choices. Mm -hmm. She didn't make good choices, but she was making the least amount. And I think Patricia, I don't know, like the jury's kind of out on her for me. So... Susan was there for this ordeal. Um, This is an important trend for Charles Manson. In the murders that they went to trial for, Charles Manson did not kill the people he's in jail for. Mm -hmm. He did not kill anybody at the Tate house. He did not kill anybody at the LaBianca house, which is why the trials were so hard, because it was really hard to pin him down for life in prison, or at that point, the death penalty, when he didn't actually kill anybody. Mm Mm-hmm. On the evening of August 8th, 1969, the murders were on the 9th, but the 8th is kind of when they're all getting together at the ranch. Manson gathered Susan, Linda, who we haven't talked about yet, and Patricia in front of the ranch, not Leslie, um, and told them to go with Tex to do as they're told. Susan said that in the car, Tex told them that they were going to go get some money from people who owed them money and then kill them. So he tells them in the car they're going to kill some people. Um, at risk of being repetitive because this is a story that's told over and over again and also to respect the very real people that were murdered in a very gruesome way. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to go like moment by moment over what happened. But what we do know and what is very public record is that Patricia, Susan, and Tex physically stabbed and shot multiple people Mm -hmm. in this house over and over again and or held down other people while they were being stabbed. Um, And we also know that Susan wrote pig or political piggy on many of the walls of different places where she killed people. Mm -hmm. This is kind of like her signature in the victim's blood. The victims from the first night were eight months pregnant actress Sharon Tate, who was married to director Roman Polanski, who was in Europe at the time. Coffee heiress Abigail Folger, Polish writer Wojciech Frykowski, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, which he's like up and coming, super famous. He was doing like Frank Sinatra's hair. He was so famous. And obviously Abigail Folger was heiress to a huge fortune. Um, And then Stephen Parent, who was kind of there by accident, visiting the house of the caretaker in the back. Um, which is really, really sad because it was the hardest for them to identify his body. And it's mm-hmm. also why the guy, the guy in the guest house, he never left the guest house that night. So he didn't die. And for a long time, the police are like, how could you have not heard anything? People were hearing screaming down the road. Yeah. But apparently he had like done a lot of drugs and had his radio turned on and like passed out and just heard nothing. But for a long time, the police thought he killed all these people. Oh Can you imagine being 19 and like all these people are dead on the lawn? Like when you're the next day and the police are just banging on your door. Like oh, that's God. crazy scary. Oh, um, so... Um, I know that people are morbidly curious about this case, but there's so much 
written about it that like you can go oh, and like yeah. find exactly what happened specifically like like the book helter skelter that gives you like a play-by-play um but also like i'm just really sad about the fact that their families this is such a widely publicized murder like they know exactly how much pain their family member was in yeah. and like exactly how many of the stab wounds were fatal and which yeah. ones they just bled out from like that is terrifying i would love to just know like oh it was quick and yeah. not painful but oh yeah i think that's that's another thing that people forget about is that like you know these were really awful brutal murders yeah like they didn't just kind of go in and like do it quick and get no. out like this was long and drawn out and horrendous the, the people i mean the people who um testified like the people had time to beg for their lives like yeah. it's that's terrifying yeah that's a terrifying thing to be a part of yeah. um the next night like the day directly after this it's august 10th 1969 manson susan patricia tex linda and now leslie and clem so two new people all the same people from the night before and now two new people mm -hmm. they go to the home of leno and rosemary labianca manson and tex tie the couple up uh, and go back to the car. Manson leaves. Tex takes Patricia, Leslie, Linda, and the others back inside. Leslie and Patricia kill this middle-class couple. And again, right in their blood on the wall. Leno LaBianca was a grocery store owner who had like a chain. Like it was a pretty good grocery store. And Rosemary LaBianca was a successful businesswoman. She had opened her own clothing company and it was like kind of booming. So she is doing like a great things. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think is most tragic about both of these murders is that the home selections were entirely random. Yeah. And like it's they were not targeting the Tates. Like the Tate or the Polanski family or their friends. They were not targeting the LaBiancas. It was random. And that's terrifying. Yeah. So these murders go down. On August 16th, 1969, only about a week after the murders, the police raid the ranch in connection to auto theft. Mm -hmm. um, but the charges were later dropped and everyone's released. So Manson moves the family from the Spawn Ranch to another ranch called the Barker Ranch. But the authorities are still really suspicious of them. Uh, they raid the new location and again, arrests are made for auto theft. Remember, at this time, though, the police are really confused about the murders because the Tates and LaBiancas don't really seem to have anything in common, but they both have, like, the words pig written in blood. There's, like, some very similar things, but it makes no sense because there's no connection. Yeah. Um, but after this auto raid, another family member who was kind of getting picked up on automobile charges is trying to get out of jail time. And implicates Susan in the machete killing of Gary oh. from back before. Mm -hmm. She gets charged with that crime and taken into jail. While in jail, Susan befriends two middle-aged career criminals, Virginia Graham and Ronnie Howard. She confesses to them, like kind of bragging about the Tate LaBianca murders. And they, of course, are like, Roman Polanski put out that he's going to pay 25000 dollars for somebody who like finds the person who killed his wife so they go immediately to the like head yeah. of the police and are like yo this girl is saying that she helped kill everybody at the tate house and the la bianca yeah. house that is also in combination with linda 
Let's talk a little bit about Linda. Much like the other Manson girls, she was a young runaway who lived on the Manson ranch. She was directed by Tex on the night of the Tate murders to get a knife, get a change of clothes, and get her driver's license to go with Tex, Susan, and Patricia to the Tate house. She had a car. She had an ID. She was like their getaway driver. But she also had a kid there at the ranch she had a child a daughter and she like was already really skeptical and wanted to leave the family but Mm -hmm. was terrified that something would happen to her daughter and therefore did a lot of the things they said out of fear so linda gets out of the car at the tate polanski residence and saw tex shoot the young boy who was visiting the guy in the back tex had a gun She stood by the car in shock while she watched the other people run in the house and kill the others. She heard horrible screams from the other side. She saw victims run from the house pleading. Um, But she also saw Tex and Susan pursuing them. Um, And she started, because she was the lookout, trying to stop the murders by saying, someone's coming. We have to go. It's time to go. I hear somebody. Um, But she's now really thinking about her daughter back home and she's worried about turning them in about, you know, this is going to be all over the news. What's going to happen to my kid? Is Charles Manson going to kill her? Mm -hmm. So the next night they go to the LaBianca house and she's asked to go again and she does not want to go, but she's driving Tex and Patricia and Leslie. She goes into the apartment with them and watches them kill the LaBiancas, but again, does not participate. Mm -hmm. After several people at the ranch had been arrested for auto theft, that's when Linda starts talking to the police in exchange for immunity to all of this Mm -hmm. and the protection of her daughter. This is super controversial because she was at both murders. Not even Leslie was at both murders. She was at both murders, um, was on the lookout, was a driver. She didn't murder anybody physically, but she also didn't immediately go to the police Mm -hmm. and prevent the murder the next night, which is problematic. Um, Again, a lot of the prosecutors and lawyers say, you know, she had a daughter at the ranch. She's pregnant with another kid. She is like trying to defend herself. Um, But when she was taken back to the Tate house to help the police figure out what happened, she's supposed to go back and break down the scene for them. She has a severe mental breakdown and is like screaming and bawling. And is like just as traumatized by the night, um, obviously as many others. Um, So after everybody's arrested and in custody and there's like no bail set, blah, blah, blah. The Manson murder trial lasts for nine months with testimony from numerous witnesses, including several other former family members. But Linda's testimony, more than anything else, led to the conviction of Manson, Tex, Susan, Patricia, and Leslie. And I want to be clear, as you said early on, these court cases are full of them bragging about mm-hmm. these murders, changing their stories back and forth, glorifying Manson, not wanting to be in prison, so changing things that they said and mm-hmm. then not glorifying Manson, giggling and laughing at the victims' families, no remorse. Like, mm-hmm. they're just still very clearly brainwashed by him. If he looked at them in a certain way, like, they tried to keep him separate from them, mm-hmm. like, altogether, but you could tell there's still, like, messages trying to get back and forth. They're mm-hmm. trying to be good disciples. Yeah. Um, after nine months of trying to prove 
who was where, who stabbed whom, who told who to do what, and when all the defendants were found guilty on all counts mm. by the jury, leading to um, the penalty phase of the trial. This is when all the female witnesses, including the defendants and others loyal to the family, carved X's on their foreheads, and a lot of them shaved their heads in allegiance to Manson. They also began testifying that Linda, rather than Manson, mastermind the Ugh. murders to try to get her in trouble because they realized they were all facing the death sentence or life in prison. Um, but because she was there at the murders, and mm -hmm. guess who wasn't? Charles Manson. Yeah. So many of these people at present have recanted their statements about blaming Linda and saying that they lied under oath when they said that. Susan Atkins was sentenced to death. Um, Patricia was convicted of seven counts of first degree murder and sentenced to death. Leslie was charged with two counts of first degree murder and one count of conspiracy to commit murder. So depending on the number of stab wounds that each girl inflicted Whoa. was the severity of their um, sentence. But ultimately, all of them were sentenced to death. Um, Susan on October 1969 uh had bore a son like with the family uh with a man from the family uh but once convicted of murder her parental right or of the death sentence her parental rights were terminated no one in her family would take responsibility for her son so he was adopted out and renamed and she has had no further contact with him and we don't know who he is wild while the girls were on trial um it's not like the Manson family was dormant. As you said, Lynette is attempting to assassinate <laughs> President Gerald Ford. And I think it's just so telling how much power he had over these people, mm -hmm. even when he was behind bars. Yeah. And I think it leans more towards that he was a psychopath mm -hmm. um, and devil incarnate. Yeah. <laughs> In February of 1972, when California changed their state laws to forbid the death penalty, all of the sentences were automatically converted to life in prison with chance for parole, as was everybody in the state. Mm -hmm. Susan was denied parole 13 times. She wrote a book in prison, Child of Satan, Child of God. She had become a born-again Christian and attempted to take her own life at least once. Mm -hmm. She got married twice in prison. Susan did come down with brain cancer and asked for parole one more time. Uh, many people were okay with it because she would have just been in a hospital bed just like right. outside of jail. But Sharon Tate's mom came to the parole hearing and said, 31 years ago, I sat in a courtroom with a jury and watched with others. I saw a young woman who giggled, snickered, and shouted out insults oh. even while testifying about my daughter's last breaths. She laughed. My family was ripped apart. If Susan Atkins is released to rejoin her family, where is the justice? Yeah. Susan Atkins died of brain cancer on September 24th, 2009 at the age of 61. Patricia is next. After Susan died, Patricia became the longest serving female inmate in California. In the beginning of her sentence, she was loyal to Manson, but over time has distanced herself from his ideology. She has maintained a perfect prison record and received a BS in human services from college in California. She writes poetry and music, plays guitar, is on the prison volleyball team, and gives dance lessons. She said... 
I wake up every day knowing that I'm a destroyer of the most precious thing, which is life. And I do that because that's what I deserve is to wake up every morning and know that. She has been continually incarcerated for more than 50 years. In May of 2022, the California State Board of Parole hearings recommended her release, but it was blocked by the governor, citing that she still possesses an unreasonable danger to society. This marked her 15th parole refusal. Leslie was granted a retrial. It actually took almost 10 years to even get her into prison because her lawyer disappeared during the original trial when she was found guilty. So they had to kind of redo it. And she wasn't sentenced until 1978. That's nine years after the murders. Um, Leslie only being at the LaBianca murders is one that people kind of have a harder time with. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a little less gruesome. Not that the people weren't tied up and stabbed. Like it was bad, but it was a little less gruesome. Um, and people have for many years campaigned for her release, even including like John Waters, like campaigns wow. for her release, like regularly in 2020, 2021 and 2022, the parole board suggested her release and the governor blocked it. So the parole board has granted her release three times and the governor has said no. Her request has been rejected over 20 times. And the most recent was November 25th, 2022. Wow. Um, because they said she fails to explain how someone of such a good background could do such horrific things, which I mean, I don't know if wasn't she can, the one that like, got yeah. like forced to have an abortion, like as a child yeah. and like bury the fetus in the yard. Like, yeah. I don't know, but you also, yeah, you can't explain that. Um, Linda who testified against all of them and was at both sets of murders has changed her name and moved to the Pacific Northwest. I do believe that these women are villains of the worst sort of nightmares. However, I do not think that because someone is merciless to their victims, that that means that we have to be merciless to them in life. Um, In Susan and Patricia's cases, it was two nights in Leslie's. It was one uh, and a terrible man manipulated them to Mm -hmm. use them for his will. I wish I could say I would be like Linda and stand there and do nothing. But if, she had not come forward. Would she also have been charged with conspiracy to commit murder? Probably. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've done a lot of stupid shit, um, on a split second thought Mm -hmm. with my peers because I felt peer pressure or like I couldn't make a weird decision at a weird Mm -hmm. time. And I just like wonder, I mean, these are two nights that obviously in those two nights, they took seven lives. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's two nights and it has shaped there forever. And maybe it should, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I, I don't know where I lie on life in prison and the death penalty. And I think our prison system is shit. So Mm. I don't know. Um, But I do want to say I'm even more sad for the victims and their families and the families of the victims because this is a sad, confusing story that's rooted in some very bad, sick, murderous shit. And the worst part of it is that it was one guy doing it for his own twisted gain. And now it's like for the rest of their waking lives, every time they flick on Netflix, they have to see his face under documentary section. Mm -hmm. You know, like I just I feel bad for them and I think it's really unfair. Yeah. Well, and like, I think people forget that, like, when parole hearings happen, like, the families of the victims get dragged into that every fucking time. Once a year. It's awful. It's crazy. So it's like, there's just no (sighs) reprieve. There's no reprieve. It's terrible. And, you know, I, 
anytime like you walk into the supermodel market mar- mm-hmm. supermarket aisle you know and he's always on the cover of like one of the, it's like him and john benet ramsey mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> on the Constant. cover every time you Constant. know and so there's yeah there's no break from it Ever. for the victim's families and it's just so fucking awful yeah oh god Wow. What a wild story. Yeah, that is a I, I hope I did OK. I yeah, bounced around great. a lot. But I mean, that's really the story of those girls and yeah. what they're most famous for. Yeah. All right. Well, now we need to talk about these two groups of women <laughs> in a little segment we like to call just the two of us. All right. So I thought it was interesting that the girls were often problem girls that got roped into this. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. like we talk, obviously all the Manson girls were, and not all of the Dahomey Amazon warriors were, but like, it's interesting that the Manson family was kind of a place for problem girls to go. Mm-hmm. And the Dahomey warriors were like a place for you to put your problem girls. Right. Of like <laughs> maybe these girls would have been put in the, you know, army if they had, <laughs> Yeah, been living in this time, but it's very interesting to me that like there's a lot of uh, girl hurt in the root of both of these stories. They are in a lot of like girl usage, like they're yeah. utilizing women like a lot for the gain of themselves or for their country. Um, mm-hmm. Both stories had a leader who was either engaging in sexual acts with or married to uh-huh. a large variety of women, um, and like. Like they were rotating around this man or mm-hmm. this country as if they were a moon and he's the planet. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's like all both the women in both stories were used in that manner. Yeah, they absolutely were. Yeah, I, I wrote that the they're the wives of the king. They're Charlie's girls. They're constantly attached to a man. And but it's interesting because for the Dahomey Amazons, like there were multiple kings like in kind of involved. Mm-hmm. So like there's kind of changed a little bit, even though it was the main one King Gezo. Um, But it's just interesting to me that we see that as like so much more of like a choice and so heroic and so cool. And mm-hmm. it takes on, and they're, but they're all doing the same thing too. They're yes. brutally killing. They are. Which is interesting, but obviously with large knives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But obviously like the, Manson girls are killing these innocent people that had nothing to do with them. Right. And, you know, the Dahomey Amazons are, in a lot of cases, in some cases defending their land, but also in some cases, like, going into neighboring tribes. And taking people. And taking people. Yeah. So, like, it is interesting the different way we see them. Yeah. And I thought, too, we saw the idea of human sacrifice different. Like, when you say human sacrifice... Is it not really just capital punishment? You were talking about they were people who had committed crimes Mm -hmm. and you are putting them to death in front of people that I mean, that is capital punishment at at its core. Yeah. So it it just seemed to me like we're we're looping around and doing the same things that haven't worked for centuries. Yeah. The state choosing. Right. Who uh, gets the right to their own life, which obviously California does not adhere to anymore. But yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, But. I also think it's interesting that in both of these stories, there were women exploited after the fact. So when the Nahomis disbanded, when France took over their country 100% and they turned them into a sideshow act, it's kind of like all of this is 
now a way for us to make money and how many people have made money off of this fucking awful crime Mm. and like i think that the manson girls have been exploited i don't really care about them being exploited so much but the families of the victims have been exploited oh yeah and like there are so many victims in this story that have had their lives ruined on a and on an annual basis Mm -hmm. (laughs) because of this and it's kind of upsetting that like you know, in the case of the Dahomey Amazons, it's like their colonizers are the one making money. And in the Manson case, it's like, I don't know who all's making money, but there are definitely people profiting off of this fucking story constantly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. anytime a that new prosecutor that wrote Helter Skelter for yeah. sure. Oh, Bugliosi. <laughs> oh, for sure. mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, made money, you know, the people, I guess at Netflix or Hulu, whoever does these docuseries, they make money off of it. Oh, yeah. Like, you know what I'm saying? And it's just, it's like recreating the battle. It's what you yes. said. Like when you said the girls were drug in to recreate the battle, imagine being the family. Mm-hmm. I mean, also imagine being Linda. They drag her back to this house to relive this night that she's terrified watching mm-hmm. people get murdered. I mean, obviously she's not as terrified as the people actually being murdered, yeah. but ha- just think of, like, that's crazy. Like mm-hmm. do, you're dragging these people through this traumatic event over and over again. Yep. It's 50 years old at this point And we're still doing that. Yeah. Well, and you know, life after the events, whether it was these Franco Dahomean wars or the murders, you know, life is not good when it comes after such tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked about the women who didn't get exploited and put in these sideshows. I mean, obviously they're not having a good time, but then there were the women left in the village who like were like, I don't know how to be just like a normal fucking person. Mm-hmm. And honestly, if these women did get paroled, They've spent most of their life now in jail. Yeah. The more, probably like double their life, right? They've been, they were like 20 when they went in and they've been in for over 50 years. Yeah. So like, would they even know how to, like, no, that's a weird also question to ask Mm -hmm. of like, I don't know. I mean, obviously like Like out of of prison is better than in prison, obviously, but like they're coming into a world that has changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I feel like that was how these warriors were feeling. Like their world has changed dramatically. They are a colony now. Mm-hmm. They, there are different rules, different leaders and the same for the Manson girls. If they like, they are in a very different world than the one where they committed those murders. And for us, I know it seems like so long ago mm-hmm. and it seems very other to us. Kind of like how the Manson first, they seem so big and so comp and like so crazy that like, it almost feels like it didn't really happen. Yeah. And it's like, I mean, Charles is now dead, uh-huh. you know, Susan mm-hmm. Atkins is now dead, but Tex is still sitting in prison. Yeah. Like, like right now, as we speak, they are sitting in prison. And I was mm-hmm. just thinking about like, um, the last warrior mm-hmm. was a contemporary yeah. of these people. She was she, alive when these murders happened. 10 years <laughs> after. She, she lived with the knowledge that this happened for 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's wild to me. Like, yeah. they, they, they lived at the same time. Yeah. I just, it's... Things that we think are such ancient history are not as far away as we think they are. No, they aren't. Like, I was thinking Colonialization. about, Colonialization. Like, yeah. And I was thinking about, like, these warriors seem so old world and really they're <laughs> around the same time as like the Samantha American girl doll. Right. I'm like, how are they yeah, existing it's the same at thing. the same time? They're existing at the same time. Yeah. So, yeah. It's wild. I don't know. And that's, 
because yeah, these stories seem so se- separate and yet they yeah have an overlap of and they, t- a decade, an overlap of a decade, and just the overlap of militarizing women, mm-hmm. like in general, which I mean can be a positive, like yeah. if you're gonna you know use it in a certain way, like if organize anything, militarize women to like, I don't know, make yeah. me some tea. Yeah. <laughs> Anything women are going to do, do it well. But like, I just, I don't know. I don't know what to think about the, like you said at the beginning, can't wrap my head around the mansion, the, the Manson ranch. Like it's too much to understand that mindset. Mm -hmm. It's just too much. Yeah. All right. Well, you ready to toast some people? I am. Let's (laughs) do it. Who would you like to toast? I I, and this might be like an obvious one, but I just want to toast Sharon Tate. I think like yeah. she gets the shit end in a lot of this because she is beautiful mm-hmm. and she was very pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I think that her body has been turned into like a gruesome piece yeah. of art, very similar to the Black Dahlia, mm-hmm. where it's like we need to stop that. And I just she was on the cusp of being possibly something great as a celebrity she was on the cusp of being a mother for Mm -hmm. the first time she had been a wife for less than a year like this girl was just at the beginning just at the beginning and i I, it breaks my heart not that the others don't break my heart right but yeah but i just like a specific toast Mm -hmm. to her because her body has been really drugged through the media in a way she probably never wanted to yeah yeah all right cheers cheers and who are you going to toast? I am going to toast the fierce, strong woman. You know, obviously, it's not great that they went into neighboring towns and ransacked them, <laughs> turned people into slaves. I don't love that. Right. But also, it's not like they were choosing to do that on their own. Mm-mm. Like, they were being ordered to, just like the Manson girls. Um, but I think in the case of the Dahomey Amazons, there's also this kind of really cool portrait of like women who demanded respect oh yeah in their lifetime in their village i and i kind of love that i love that there is this group of women and they almost kind of we we talked a lot about female soccer last time and it almost made me feel like they're like the soccer team coming back from like winning the world cup and yeah. like he's like you don't even want to look at them because they're, they're too great you know <laughs> too good hide your eyes turn away yeah and obviously like some of the things they did were not great but I also think that it's cool whenever large historic groups of women can, I don't know. Kick ass. Kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Mm. All right. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay. I'm on Hulu. Uh-huh. There's this show called Unexplained. And it's just a good show. Like if you're into like just weird shit and they have a whole bunch of different. There's this fly about to kill us. Awful. I know. Um, A a whole bunch of crazy stuff that it like every episode has something different that's Mm -hmm. unexplained. Okay. It's narrated by William Shatner. Also (laughs) cool. But then the intro to each episode, it's like, I swear to God, William Shatner came in and did all these in one day. Oh, I bet he did. One take a piece. There's like some of them, the pauses or breaks are like in the weirdest places. And Katie, I laugh so hard at just the intros to this show. So that's all. It's a great show. I love that. But 
just for, I mean, he's wearing the same outfit. There's like three seasons of this show and he clearly did them all in one day. One take a piece. He was just like, you know what? That cut will do. And then just keeps rolling. That's like the Benedict Cumberbatch penguins thing. Have yeah. you <laughs> no, heard of that? I, no, I haven't. He narrated an entire like nature documentary and he was saying penguins wrong the whole time. How was he saying it? Penwings. Is there is that a British way to say it? No, <laughs> because Graham Norton had him on a show and was fucking roasting him and was like, how do you not know how to say the word penguin? He goes, I don't know. He goes, it just kind of started happening and then I couldn't stop it from happening. And then it's, and then he says it wrong, like a couple different ways, too. But yeah, <gasps> oh he, at one God. point he says pinlings, <laughs> pinwings, penlings. It's crazy. I would highly recommend <laughs> looking up that. High. Unreal. And it's like. No one said anything in the recording booth. Like Stop it's like a William Shatner thing. It's like, who's here that Who we said can't... that? Who... I was like, I'm sorry, Benedict Cumberbatch is not like the president of the United States correct or something, or like actor. the king of England. Like, just correct him. Yeah. I'm sure he would much rather be corrected than Made spend the rest of, of his life having people yell, yell penwing at him. <laughs> What's your favorite animal, Benedict? <laughs> Penling. Um, okay, what do you got for me? Okay, I'm going to recommend an Instagram account. It's a dog. Mm. Her name is Sunday the Black Lab. Sunday is spelled S-U-N-D-A-E. Oh, perfect. She's the most perfect dog. And her owner dresses her up <laughs> as like various like regular ass like lady workers. Like she'd be like a cashier at, Char- at Target. She'll be a crossing guard. And she always has these wigs on and earrings. And... <laughs> She like always puts it to the song. Ain't nobody <laughs> love me better, and it's so fucking funny. And she had, I mean, she has pants, name tags, lanyards. Perfect. She had a little uh, crossing guard stop sign in her like little like belt the other day. She's the most perfect dog. I love that. And apparently there's like some big like birthday celebration for her going on in Georgia. So if you're in Georgia and you want to go celebrate Miss Sunday's birthday. Misty. Um, Misty's in Georgia. Yes. Yeah, so go on because Miss Sunday, she is a delight and she makes my day I every love day. positive social media. It's the best. Yeah. And then like she'll like... <laughs> give miss sunday like spa days mm. she'll put a little shower cap on her oh. and she'll like paint her nails <laughs> it's the best i love that all right well thank you all for listening sorry if this was not the most uh upbeat wow it was episode. so sad for this dreary time of year yes. <laughs> um but we'll be back next week with more stories um uh, but in the meantime please join us on social media for mm-hmm. tipsy tuesdays rate and review us rate and review us that would be great and if you want more of this action right here you can join us on patreon which we're gonna do next yes for as little as a dollar a month you can join us on patreon we have so much fun and then don't forget about our live show coming up on march 24th 24th all your happening in the the works gonna be perfect yeah (gasps) all right we love you and we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't slice people yeah they don't they really (laughs) don't um they also really make history (laughs) they do really make history so goodbye goodbye